come on to part two of the interview, Professor Simon Deacon here at Centre for Business Research. Let's look at the projects you've been working on. Infrastructure, very topical because of George Osborne's autumn statement regarding getting pension funds to invest in infrastructure projects. But what are the problems of governance with these infrastructure projects? Well, a complex project like Heathrow Terminal 5 is governed in the sense that, that there is a set of contracts put in place in a case like that by, by the main client and with its main contractors and subcontractors. These contracts are, in a sense, a kind of mini-constitutional code for that project. And the, the contracts set out the terms upon which the different parties will deal with each other. They set out the terms upon which risks and costs are allocated between the parties and also, critically, they put in place procedures and processes for dialogue between the parties designed to solve problems as they come up and to resolve them in a way which will bring in all the different stakeholders in a very complex project like that. So Terminal 5 was successful, not just because it was well designed by people with a far-sighted view about both the clients and the customers' interests, but in particular because of the processes put in place for dialogue and deliberation between the different stakeholders. Talking really helps. Communication between the stakeholders, between the parties, helps to ensure that coordination as far as possible in a very complex project like that um, works in in reconciling the different interests and in resolving problems and in, in allocating risks. So T5 is a great example, actually, of industry self-regulation. This wasn't done by the government or by the legal system coming in. It was done by the industry itself. Learning from its past mistakes, the construction industry learned from its past mistakes at the Wembley Stadium project in the Jubilee Extension Line project. These lessons were embedded through a learning process in the contractual design of T5. So this is a great example of what can be achieved. It's also a really good example of long-term patient investment by, by the city in the Terminal 5 project. When Terminal 5 was being set up, the then main client, BAA, effectively sold the idea of this huge capital investment project to its own shareholders on the basis of the long-term returns they would get. So capital in, in the UK context can be patient, it can be stable. Okay, so we can be like Germany or Japan, we can incorporate some of the good aspects of their systems. We don't necessarily need government to tell us how to do it. But the wider lesson of T5 is that actually some of these successes were not sufficiently well embedded for them to be repeated on a continuing basis. Okay, this is where government comes in. Government can capture the benefits of something like T5, embed them in longer-lasting, enduring institutions. This is the role of the state. And you've just described the word capital with human characteristics. Mm. You've said it can be patient, it can be mm. stable. Mm. Do you think perhaps it, it, capital investment needs those kind of human qualities to succeed? It, it, it doesn't need to be abstract. It needs to be able to relate to the people involved in the project. It's not, it's not a mechanical process. We, what we want is not, I think, for investors to be more or less human than they already are, but we need investors to take decisions which factor in long-term costs and benefits more effectively than, that, than they currently do. At the moment, a lot of investment is short-term. Okay, shareholders can benefit from short-term share price movements. A lot of it is churning. A lot of it is even decisions taken in milliseconds by computers about whether to buy or sell shares. Okay, that's fine. That will always go on in the city. There is some benefit in terms of liquidity to be had from these processes, but we also need the other side of investment, investors understanding and factoring in not just the long-term costs, but also the benefits from investment in projects like T5. Now, there's, there's a lot of evidence that we don't do enough of that long-term planning at the investment stage in the UK. 
So these sort of innovative enterprises require specific frameworks to work in and to succeed. And basically, by looking at, at previous projects, what's gone wrong, what's right, you can build them into new projects and say, it's more likely to be successful if we do this. So it's a learning process, and learning is an evolutionary process whereby we learn from our failures and we embed that, that learning in institutions and the benefits, therefore, of that learning process are more widely spread across a whole economy. So this, this is what we mean by institutional learning. It's not the state dictating the right answer to industry. It's industry learning, often, from its own experience, what the right answers might be, and the state assisting in the dissemination of that learning through putting the right incentives in place, through requiring disclosure, but also encouraging deliberation and dialogue between, between the parties to these very complex arrangements. So there is a division of labour between the state and the private sector. They need each other to, to make this work. It isn't a simple question of the state versus the market in this sense. And I suppose in terms of getting the pension funds to invest in infrastructure projects, if that capital had that stability, if it had those human characteristics, pension funds would automatically do it because they would see it as a good investment. Well, pen pension funds must, must invest for the very long term because their beneficiaries will want to get pensions in 20 or 30 years' time. So on the one hand, they, they should have a natural long-term focus. But on the other hand, pension funds also have short-term pressures. They have to balance risk and returns over both the short-term and the long-term. And it would be naive to believe that just because the beneficiaries of a pension fund ha themselves have long-term interests, that those long-term interests are automatically and costlessly and seamlessly translated into action by those pension funds. It's, it's, not a, it's not an easy set of choices for pension fund trustees or the asset managers whom they empower to take decisions on their behalf to make. So what we need is a system where there's better information exchange, there's more disclosure, but also more transparency, I think, about long-term benefits and costs. Pension fund trustees have a fiduciary duty to get the best possible return after taking account of risk and the need for diversification but the members of those pension schemes, okay, so government cannot and should not dictate to pension funds where they invest and how they invest. But the government can say to pension funds, it's in your enlightened long-term interests to support a competitive economy in the UK. British pension funds need to support a competitive and innovative and sustainable British economy as well as investing globally. They need to do both because at the end of the day, the beneficiaries and members of these pension schemes very largely are British workers, um, British households with insurance policies and savings policies, they have an interest in ensuring a sustainable, competitive British economy. Move on to a slightly different area now, knowledge-intensive labour markets. Mm. They're global markets. The financial mm. world is, is an example of them. It's going to be very hard to regulate because, you know, if people have knowledge, they move between boundaries, they move across uh, borders. Can, can you, if you like, regulate for human projects? Well, I, I, I think that, first of all, we, we inevitably regulate labour markets, both nationally and globally. There's already regulation, but often the regulation doesn't work. So we have a big problem about casual labour and self-employment. How do we regulate that? How do we create the conditions for self-employment to be a pathway to entrepreneurial activity for many individuals, but also for self-employment not to be abused or misused, to be a vehicle for tax evasion or maybe for, for tax avoidance, and also for casualisation. This is a very, very difficult set of problems. There may not be a straightforward answer to this, but my, my, my point is that there's a public interest in getting this right. The way we define self-employment versus more regular employment, the way we regulate each, okay, the way we regulate low-paid employment, what rules we have on dismissal, how we tax employment, 
employment, these all have critical implications for firms and for workers. And again, it's not just a question of firms versus workers. Both employers and employees, workers, have an interest in creating a situation where we can invest in capacity, we can invest in labour power, in labour, in human capital, invest in skills and training. And often that can only be done by getting the, the regulatory framework of tax law and employment law right. Okay, so right now in the UK we're having a big debate about unfair dismissal. Right? On, on, on the one hand, it's prob probably the case that some aspects of dismissal law involve an excessive amount of proceduralisation and paperwork for firms. But on the other hand, we do not want to create a situation in which we entirely lift the, the so-called burden of regulation for some categories of work relationship, and this is just an invitation to the further casualisation of, of those forms of work. And the result of that will just be less investment in human capital. If we're looking at the Centre for Business Research approach, you've got a distinct approach in that is, if you like, eclectic. It's multidisciplinarian, isn't it? Just run through the, the skill expertise within this centre. It, it's really just being to the social sciences, what, what the other sciences have always done. There's an appreciation in physics and chemistry and biology, in the engineering disciplines, that real progress is made in science through interdisciplinarity. So one has to bring together the insights of different disciplinary teams. In our case, it means bringing together the insights of economists, management specialists, sociologists and legal specialists. They all bring something to, to the process. They all have knowledge. Combining that knowledge is not an easy task. Okay. What the centre must do is do what it preaches, in a sense, other people should do. They, they, they should be working together, deliberation and dialogue between the different disciplinary teams to get value added out of this process. But we are doing what has to be done to make progress in social science research, I, I would say. And you're going to be, if you like, bringing together new data sets that, that people will be able to tap into and uh, use. And why are these data sets needed? And, and if you like, how are you going to assess the effectiveness of your work in the future? Well, what, what, we, what we have been doing for many years is, is creating new data sets. Partly, partly that means um, a lot of survey work, um, interview work, collating data on trends in the economy concerning corporate governance, concerning in particular small and medium-sized enterprises. This, this is one of the things we do. But we also create new data in the sense of measuring for the first time things which often haven't been very well measured. So one of the things we have done through innovative methodologies is to try to quantify institutional phenomena like legal rules, the rules of legal systems. We try to get a better grasp quantitatively on how legal rules work in practice through a combination of legal analysis, survey work and economic statistical analysis. So this is a, a new area of social science that we have called um, leximetrics to signify the use of quantitative methodologies originally pioneered in the hard sciences and in, in economics to understand legal phenomena. And the underlying approach that we have taken here is one which says we cannot very well understand these complex institutional phenomena without getting a better quantitative and st statistical grasp on how they work. Okay, we, we need to apply some of the techniques of the mainstream sciences to the understanding of complex social phenomena um, to get a better grasp on how they work. And, and then you will really be able to quantify what you do and the difference it, it's making uh, in the future. And of course, 
the one thing we haven't mentioned yet is technology, because in fact, you know, we're living in an industrial revolution where technology and the speed of communication is, is changing the world and, and making global business more possible. Are you, if you like, going to help to provide governance regulation of the future, which takes into account this new globalisation through technology? Yes, there are, a lot, there are some difficult questions about the relationship between technology and the, the regulatory or institutional environment. We're living in a, in a context where markets change very quickly, where what technology does is it, is it basically reshapes the entire structure of markets. So established markets, like, for example, the, the market for television, the market for newspapers, the, these are merging, okay, as a consequence of new technological development. So we see market barriers breaking down, existing patterns of economic relationships fundamentally changing. Now, when that happens, the, the, the regulatory framework has to be able to adjust. This isn't a question of it being endlessly flexible, but it has to, it has to uh, provide a stable framework for economic activity, but it has to be capable of adjusting to these very turbulent technological conditions. So a lot of this, again, is about learning. Okay, The solutions can't be dreamt up in an ivory tower or in a government office and then applied to everybody. This is a question of understanding from technologists themselves, very often, how the, the, particular, the particular features or structures of a given technology, the internet would be a good example, shape economic relationships, create on the one hand new opportunities for market exchange, but also new blockages and new distortions. The, the, the technological requirements themselves, which are often only understood by engineers initially, create these economic issues and then become a, a, a question for, for wider social and economic analysis. So what we do is we bring together computer scientists and engineers who have this particular knowledge in the way certain technologies work, and we, we put that knowledge to use in the context of economic models and social models which explain how regulatory systems work. So again, we're bringing together different disciplinary approaches to get an integrated understanding. And, and let's just say, and finally, Professor Simon Deacon at the Centre for Business Research, by giving... If you like capital, those human characteristics, by providing stability through better governance and, and better uh, regulation, it is going to benefit everybody, whether you're a shareholder, whether you're a, an investor, or whether you are an employee. So this is what some economists call a collective action problem. Sometimes actors can know what they should do, but it's not in the incentives of any one person or one group to do what's necessary. A, a kind of tragedy of the commons. Okay, So often we end up with less than ideal situations. This is very frustrating because what, what is needed is sometimes political action or regulatory intervention, or maybe the action of a dominant player in a particular market to move things along. There's no guarantee that we will get to the right answer, okay, e even though we can all see that a particular problem arises. So this is the situation we're now in. We've had a financial crisis. We're living through a, a period of technological turbulence where market boundaries are shifting all the time. There's an ever greater need to understand what's possible through institutional design to solve these collective action problems. So this means more social science research to understand these issues. Well, good luck, and, and I can see basically how we're all going to, to benefit through your, your new research. Professor Simon Deacon, Centre for Business Research, thank you very much indeed for talking to us today. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you.